So, your mind, as my mind, uh, complex things. Uh, the brain has two dominant, uh, always has two sides to it. One side in the frontal region is dedicated to your thoughts, to your plans, to all the stories you carry around. Um, all those, na those memories that you tell yourself, they're a part of the left hemisphere, anything that's in language. The right hemisphere is not as conscious, and it's your emotions. Uh, those impulses, urges, feelings, uh, emotional energies that push and pull you about, that often seem uh, unwelcome sometimes when we feel ourselves driven by frustration and heat and anger and other times feel very welcome when we're in love. And um, so tonight I'm addressing uh, specifically the emotions of um, the urge to connect, to express ourselves, to be, uh, to do things in the world, to uh, take risks, and the other contrary impulse, the inhibitions, the fears of trying out new things, of trying to connect, of being open, of sharing, of uh, being vulnerable. The emotional mind is, is what could be best described as an expectation machine. It expects every incident, situation, event to play out exactly the same way it's played out previously. So if you have uh, a situation in your life where you take a risk and it's warmly reviewed. People f applaud you. They like your song. They like your drawing. They like it when you share your feelings. You will, after that, have generally positive emotional energies that will arise or urges to continue to seek that which people approve of. But then there's also times in life when, as I'm sure you're aware by now, we reach out, we are vulnerable, we try to connect, we try to share our, our emotions, our feelings, we try to be self-expressive, and people don't receive it very well. People turn away. They might make fun of us, blame, shame, uh, they might ostracize us, they might make us feel unwelcome. And so that creates an, what's known as an inhibition impulse. Now, if all things were terrific, the mind would equally weigh the positive with the negative, and when you had a few positive experiences, you'd be encouraged to reach out and talk to people and connect with people and take risks and play your music or write your, your stories or paint your paintings or do whatever you want to do to connect and express yourself. But the drawback is the mind has what's known to psychologists as a negativity bias. Even one bad interaction 
can undo all of the positive times. Equal impulses between, oh, that person looks interesting. I'd like to say hello to them. Along with the negative impulse of, oh, but maybe they'll not like me. They'll push me away. They'll turn away. The mind will always go with the negative. Why is that? Well, it all boils down to we are living in the same brain, the same operating system, as, as you well know. No, because I say it here practically every week. It's the same operating system as they had 50,000 years ago when they last upgraded it. <laughs> Guess what? The world has changed a lot in the last 50,000 years. You're no longer outrunning boars, wild boars for your survival or being uh, chased around by... Uh, you know, jungle cats. I don't know why that's the only thing I can think of right now. Jungle cats. Um, anyway, let your imagination run wild. But you know that it, uh, we haven't kept up with changes. If you get a, a Macintosh, every day they want you to upgrade the operating system. But the human mind hasn't done it for 50,000 years. We still think that... Uh, uh, someone giving us a hostile glance is the equivalent of somebody uh, chasing after us with spears and axes. It still creates the same emotional terror and fear. And the brain is set up to give far more emphasis to keeping your asses alive than it is to you connecting with other people. And your brain, yes, your brain thinks that if somebody looks at you funny, doesn't like something you say, criticizes you, it takes, especially when we're young, when we're infants, it takes that experience, those experiences, as really threatening, deeply threatening. When an infant is not securely connected with people, when people emotionally look away, don't react, that infant feels very, very, very vulnerable. And so, early in life, any experience of having somebody reject us or uh, not support us can create a lot of um, future emotional baggage. So, very often in life, though, intellectually, we grow and we keep up with the times and we might have intellectually appropriate ages in our minds. We might think and act like somebody who's 30 or 40 or 50. If we have a rejection experience when we're very young, emotionally in that area will remain emotionally that age when we first experience the rejection and stop trying to push through. For example, when I was a kid, my parents had the awful idea of sending me to summer camp. I was a skinny, little, neurotic, nerdy kid from... from uh, Manhattan. I couldn't swim for the life of me. I had no 
outdoor skills. And it was, this was a camp my mother thought, oh, it would be good for him. It'll be a, it's an outdoor survival <laughs> training camp. As a little neurotic Jew, which is what I was, it felt like the absolute worst thing that you could do to me. I wanted to be left alone to read my books, my comic books, and uh, hang out with my friends. And instead I was out there in the wild with older kids who, who wasted no opportunity to belittle me, shame, and make fun of everything I did. And especially when it came to water, anything that had to do with water, I was, I was probably the most neurotic 11-year-old when it came to anything that had to do with water because I was really skinny and my, the, the swimming trunks that my parents bought me were really huge. And when I go into the water, they would billow up with air pockets and people would gather from miles around to point <laughs> and make fun of me. So from that point on, even though I could swim, I, just, I emotionally developed an inhibition where I avoided ever uh, getting into the water. You don't have to, this doesn't have to happen to you. <laughs> Think of this as a nightmare that happens to other people. Uh, so I was... Uh, so it, it cast a inhibition around taking risks and going into the water. And it, I, I had to wait until I was in my 40s to uh, get back in and start swimming again. And it was a very incremental, slow process. Because intellectually, I was in my 40s, but emotionally, when it came to going into the water in front of other people, I was still 11 years old, because that was the time that I last tried and I started to repress the idea. And so I never got to the point emotionally where I thought, well, if I go into the water and people make fun of me, I'll be fucking 40 years old. I'm sorry, 40 years old. And I, you know, if they make fun of me, that's their problem. I'm a 40-year-old man. I got tattoos. I'm a scary-looking guy. It's not going to matter to me. But no, I was still a little 11-year-old. You know, a tattooed 11-year-old. the worst. So um, that's what happens when we allow our inhibitions to go unchecked, when we simply follow them. Inhibitions and urges, because they're emotions, they don't speak to us in language. They're feelings. When we have an, Im an impulse to avoid something, it's tension. If I think of doing something that makes me uncomfortable, that previously was difficult, and now I have the expectation it'll be difficult again, it's not like it arises as a language idea. Don't do that. That kind of sucks. Last time I did that, that was not good. No, that's not the way it works. I'll have a feeling of discomfort. I'll feel... Uh, you know, I'll start tensing. The unconscious controls the, the, mus the muscles in the torso. It has three motor neurons, the muscles in the torso, the face, and the heart rate and the digestion. So even though intellectually, uh, with our intelligence, we can feel very gung-ho about our, an idea, you might have noticed that sometimes while you think, wow, I should be able to do this, I should be able to stand up in front of people and talk, I should be able to ask somebody out on a date, I should be able to take this risk. What happens 
when I even think of doing it is I start to sweat, I, my heart starts to beat, my stomach gets tight, I feel uncomfortable. That's an impulse, an inhibition circuit impulse. And that's the way your right hemisphere of your brain lets you know that sometime in the past you had an experience that was uncomfortable and it, exper- it expects it to be uncomfortable once again. The earlier these experiences happen, the negative experiences happen, the more difficult it can be to override it. When I experience an uncomfortable event as an adult, it hurts, but I don't feel like my life is going to be ending. I don't worry that I'm, I'm going to die. If I go to, God forbid, a wedding... <laughs> Friends don't invite friends to weddings. I've decided that. Or at least me. It's always the place where, you know, you go and you sit at the table of eight. You don't know anybody. And you have no idea where you're put with them. And then you sit there and you try to have a conversation and I always regret it. But I don't feel like I'm going to die. They say, oh, hi. Why are you here? Oh, I know the bride, whatever. Oh, what what are you doing? And I say, uh, I teach Buddhism, and you just see. (laughs) So, but I don't die. I don't feel like I feel like okay. You know, that's unpleasant, but I can move on with my life. I can still talk to strangers. But when you're a nine-year-old at a schoolyard, and you try to say hello to you know one of those kids, the jocks, God forbid. And they're like, who, who the hell are you? That's traumatic. So the earlier in life the, the inhibitions start, the more and more difficult it is to undo them, and it takes more effort, because the fear will be far greater. Also, the inhibitions tend to circle about areas where we feel the most vulnerable when we're being looked at by other people, so speaking in front of groups, when we're being vulnerable by expressing our feelings, liking or feelings that might disappoint someone. And as you might have become aware, there's also sexual inhibitions too. Any area in life where we're vulnerable, where we feel unprotected, where we feel perhaps unaccustomed or unprepared, or where we feel viewed by lots of people can create a very strong inhibition impulse. So, then the... uh, When we try to push our way through inhibition, sometimes what we'll do is we'll rely on really, really bad strategies. (laughs) You may, hopefully you've not noticed, but in the bookstores there are now shelves filled with, uh, I, I put down some of the names, one is called The Rules, Capturing the Heart of Mr. Wright. 
ways to pick up women. <laughs> Neil Strauss has blessed us with a book called The Game, where apparently hooking up with other people is a game, where you try to score points or become successful. It's all, you see, a game. It's not real. It's not emotional. It's all a game. There's the very promising how to make love like a porn star. (laughs) So, uh, all of these are terrible ideas. (laughs) Horrible ideas. The idea that you should push through anything that's frightening by abandoning your feelings and trying to perform an inauthentic role, try to be somebody else, try to be funny when you don't feel funny, you know how funny you'll be? You won't be. (laughs) Try to be confident when you're feeling vulnerable, it won't work out. The only way to work through fears and inhibitions is by being emotionally honest. It's far more uh, winning to be honest when you're feeling nervous rather than to pretend that you're not. When I first started teaching here, I was uh, extremely nervous, and the first words that were out of my mouth for the first, uh, I don't know, probably year, were always... I am so nervous. That's the first thing I... And just by acknowledging that, the concealment would drop away. So the first step of working through an inhibition is to acknowledge what we're feeling, to not abandon ourselves or try to present or try to act as if you can show up and be really frightened or really worried about an interaction. But if you acknowledge that, immediately you're being authentic to yourself and that will make you feel so much more confident. That's the first step to overcoming the desire or the impulse to hide. The second strategy or the second uh, approach is to investigate and to become aware of all the feelings that are going on beneath your awareness that are creating the inhibition, creating the feeling of, oh no, this is not a good idea. Very often, we can abandon an impulse, I mean an urge to be creative so early on because we've had a negative experience. For example, um, for uh, at one point in my life, I was used to play a lot of music, write a lot of music, and then at one point I had some negative experiences, and I didn't, I didn't do a lot of music for a while, and then when I would try to get back into it, even just sitting at the piano was a chore, not even playing it for other people, but even the act of sitting down and just doing something alone became tainted because 
inhibitions, if we don't check them, they can grow and attach to anything that reminds us of the rejection. So, not just playing in front of people became frightening, but even the urge just to sit down by myself and just play the piano became difficult. So one of the things I would do is I would, before I would play, is I would bring my awareness into the body and find all the areas where the fear was showing up. I'd find it in my chest, in my belly, I'd find it in the breath, I'd find it in the my, you know, the stomach tightening, the the hairs on my neck, the, on, my, on my arms and my neck. Um, I feel the tightening of my forehead. And the more I began to know how fear was talking to me, how it was communicating to me or signaling to me, I wouldn't just push it away. I would allow it to be there. I'd feel it, and then I'd soften it one by one so that I could relax and breathe. The the most efficient way to relax into overcoming a inhibition is to work with the out-breath and really, really stretch it out as long as you can. This will, uh, this works wonders, and the reason is it's cheap, in a way. Uh, the unconscious reads how your out-breath is, and you can make your unconscious or the emotional brain feel much more confident if you breathe in a way that lets it know that nothing bad is happening. And when you're breathing really long and out, it's, an, it's the way the, the brain is basically taught to or is programmed to believe that everything's okay when you do that. So if I don't have the time to relax fully the body and everything, I'll just go to the out-breath when I'm nervous about talking to someone or interacting or uh, putting myself out there. I'll really work just extending the out-breath as long as I can. It builds up a lot of confidence. It's really good idea, this is uh, method number three, uh, to... Um, <coughs> Write out all the fears in a journal so that you see exactly it, what, where your uh, fear believes that taking a risk in life, trying to communicate, share your feelings, where you think, where the fear believes it will end up. It's a good exercise because when I do that, every fear I have inevitably winds up with me dying. It doesn't matter what it is. It's always, I could have a desire to... Try when I was uh, 45, I started to skateboard for the first time in my life. Why did I do that? I have no idea. Um, but I did, and I wanted to teach myself. I didn't want to have lived a whole life without learning how to skateboard, so I did. And there was a lot of like, you know, uh, uh, difficulty getting giving myself permission just to go out on the street and, uh, and uh, get on a skateboard. And so I wrote it out, and my fear, without, if I, without editing it, my fear said, well, if you get on a skateboard, all the kids in the neighborhood, they're going to laugh at you, they're going to think you're an oaf, and then you're going to be like you were when you were 11, you'll feel outcast, and then you'll just want to die. <laughs> so everything ends with me alone, miserable, and 
and being made fun of or whatever. That's where I am emotionally. So when I write it out, I can see, wow, this is not true. This is not true. Actually, I'll be okay, even if it doesn't turn out. And just by doing that, I gave myself permission to get on a skateboard and just to push myself around. And um, that brings up for um, another really good strategy, number four. The Buddha came up with the practice of kaganusati, which is reflecting on all the times in life things work out. Not allowing the mind to go where it naturally goes to, which is constantly focusing on the disappointments, the setbacks, the times where we reach out to people and they don't uh, receive us, they don't want to hear us, they don't want to emotionally meet us, but actually to focus really on the times when risks pay off. Sometimes it requires a lot of memory. If we have an urge to do something in life, the first thing that will come up always will be the negativity bias. What can go wrong? So it can take a lot of, a, a lot of working through one's memory to come up with examples of times where we did exert ourselves, take a chance, and where people did support us. But that's the most important practice because the mind will always go to the negative. One practice that works for me, it might seem a little bit uh, overwhelming for you, but I do it, is uh, the Buddha often talked about uh, what he called marana sati, which means reflecting that none of us have any guarantees. None of us know how long we're going to live, how much more time we have. And so the thought of, do I really want to allow life to pass by without at least trying this, without taking this risk? This is what he called also otapa, the fear of not taking advantage of our time here, of not really reaching out, of not really sharing our lives with others, not being vulnerable, not trying to grow spiritually. It's so easy to get caught up in the fear of what might happen, but the, for me, the fear we really should have is what would it be like if we didn't try? I've done a lot of work in hospice with people who are at the end of their lives, and I've never heard anybody regret trying things. I've always, though, invariably hear people regretting things that they didn't try. Living lives openly, trying to reach out, trying to forgive and reconnect, trying to be um, emotionally available and honest. Finally, um, one last note. It's really important to um, separate the creative mind from the critical mind. In my experience, people, when they want to start writing, they'll write one sentence, and then they'll start reviewing it. <laughs> oh, this isn't the best sentence that anybody's ever read. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, shit, I suck at this. 
I got to fix this before I go on. The moment we engage the critical mind, that's when we're in the inhibition circuits, the impulses to shut us down. The creative mind is not a mind that reviews, criticizes, judges, or edits. It's just that which puts out anything without any any uh, worry about if it sounds good or if it looks good or if it's perfect or anything like that. The concern about something looking good, sounding good, being better than others, that's the editing mind, the, the critical mind. And it's really important to separate the two. The critical mind has its place. If we're writing a paper and we're presenting it, we need to have a critical mind after we have fun. No matter what it is, no matter how much we don't want to do something, the key part is to just play. Have fun with it. Try to write, create, do something that in no way we believe is presentable. And just do it, and then allow the critical mind later on to make sense of it all and turn it into something good. But the sooner we bring in the critical mind, the sooner we're bringing in the impulse to inhibit ourselves and stop and make our lives small and confined again. Finally, no matter how uh, awkward you find opening in life, never, if possible, give in to the mind that beats up on yourself if somebody turns you down or uh, uh, somebody doesn't receive you or doesn't receive or doesn't greet your attempts, we can undo planting more inhibitions in our lives if we are our allies. And even if somebody else doesn't like a song, a painting, a poem, uh, uh, an effort to ask them out on a date, whatever it is, if we reward ourselves and feel good about our efforts, we can be the difference between turning a risk into something that we'll try again or turning a risk into something that will just be the end of our endeavors in that area of life. If we reward ourselves after taking a chance, we can at least create the possibility of again reaching out and trying to express ourselves and make meaningful deep connections with the world around us. So I hope there was something in there worth reflecting on in some way. I thank you for listening. And uh, some people like to leave at the break, so we'll we'll let them have that opportunity. If you do leave, if you can uh, contribute so we can pay the rent, that would be really, really uh, helpful.